harness your strengths, develop a growth mindset, become more resilient and succeed. This is the Commit Podcast with Ireland's leading performance company, Multi-Performance. And on this week's podcast, we find out about resilience, confidence and leadership from an inspiring woman, Kira Doherty, who didn't let life's challenges stand in her way, both in Ireland and in Rwanda. But first I asked her about her unusual decision to want to work in the male-dominated construction industry. I studied civil engineering at university from 2002 until 2006 and uh, construction and the built environment has always been a passion of mine. I grew up in a family of joiners and builders so it was something I always knew that I wanted to do from a a young age. Um, Much to much people's surprise coming from a grammar school background it wasn't the done thing to do for a female to enter into the world of construction however nonetheless I studied civil engineering. Did you have a lot of brothers or? No I have two sisters <laughs> yeah and I now have three daughters so it's all girls in the family yeah. So where did that interest or love of it come from? I just kind of went to work with my dad when he was doing odd jobs and just had a love for what he was doing and how things were being built. Originally I wanted to be a joiner or a bricklayer and then my dad thought, no, try, you know, a career as opposed to a trade. Um, and whilst I would advocate both, the professional side of things much suited me and my personality. And was it a case when you got to college, you loved it and knew this is what you wanted uh, to do? Yeah, I was kind of shy in college. Um, it wasn't really my scene to be in the mix with a lot of people. I kept myself to myself. I was in a class full of all boys. There was only one other girl. Things didn't go so smoothly in my year out. I, I managed to find myself pregnant and, and a single mum. I was in a relationship at the time, which since didn't work out. Um, and I suppose having my daughter whilst in uni was probably my first experience of personal resilience. Arrived back to do my finals with a, a child who was six weeks old. Brought the car seat into the lecture theatre and the lecturer looked at me and thought, you know, who owns the baby? And I thought, yeah, she's mine. I had her a few weeks ago. So with a little bit of help, we got some childcare sorted out. And How did you get through that? Was it family support? Um, I kind of was at that time quite isolated. I moved out of the house when I was 17 um, with the my partner at the time um, was quite a, an abusive relationship so I was isolated from family and friends I suppose having my daughter then kind of just sharpened my focus a little bit and made me think about her and what I needed to do for her so I kind of pushed on through university still in the same relationship in my final year it's a lot of studying at night and night feeds and non-sleep um, but I kind of knew that if I didn't push on that final year I would have never have finished it. Were you doing it more for her as well? I was absolutely doing it for her. Um, I went through the year and um, Clodagh then when I finished uni she was just turning one. I failed an exam. I'd never failed an exam in my life so I I, I didn't know what it was like to fail anything. I got 14% so just the stress of everything got to me. Um, The university allowed me to repeat that subject and I ended up getting a first class honours degree. Um, I also won the um, student prize for best performance in structural subjects and I was brought to this uh, swanky affair in the Europa Hotel, um, this single mother who's doing engineering um, and they gave me a cheque for £1,200 and I decided to take that cheque and my daughter um, and I left the relationship. Um, I lifted Clodagh when she was about two days from being one 
I lifted her from her sleep and, and, and went just walked from where I was living to my, my home house. And I, I, never, I never looked back. What was the tipping point that made you do that? Uh, the tipping point was how I was being treated. I knew that I was in the wrong environment and I knew that she was in the wrong environment and I wanted better for her. So I, I made the decision that as her mother, I needed to show her what what you need to, to tolerate. And I just, I suppose, bit the bullet and made the decision. I was in a relationship for seven years and she was the tipping point that, that made me act. And then it was really the first time that I related that my decisions and my choices had the ability to impact my life massively. And from I made that that decision just to get up and leave at that moment and leave all of my belongings and hers, I realised that's it. From here on in, I am going to go with my gut and I'm in control of my life and I make my own decisions. Did your family welcome you with open arms? Or it must have been relieved to see yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, they kind of knew how things were, were going, but because I'd isolated myself, I, I only told them so much. So they, of course, welcomed me home and the baby and everything was just fine it was like a weight off my shoulders and all those material things that I've been worrying about and I'm proud you know I have a home and I have a car and all that was gone but I had my daughter and my family and it was at that point I realized I didn't need everything else. You strike me as a strong confident woman um the fact that you moved out at 17 shows a certain independent streak to you but is it is it is it the kind of sign of kind of when you're in an abusive relationship like that that you hide away from kind of maybe the people who want to help you? Yeah, um, I guess for me, everybody always seen me as the confident person. I was always very headstrong, always knew what I wanted out of life. So when I found myself in that type of relationship, people were surprised. They they didn't expect something like that to to happen to me. Um, and I guess I kind of just went for it. So inside, I was feeling like a different person than what I was portraying to be on the outside. And I guess that's probably uh, the feelings a lot of women would go through, or men who are, are in abusive relationships. It's you, you hate it. How were the months afterwards? Was it kind of a difficult to transition, you know, into the situation you were back in, getting away from that abusive situation? Or did you feel so empowered that you said, right, the rest of my life begins now? I actually felt empowered that what seemed like a huge decision was actually just a simple decision to just walk and it just gave me the strength to know that I'm in control and I did feel a sense of relief and and empowerment to to better my life for myself but but mostly Cloda and within a very short space of time probably within four to six months I had landed a job as a civil engineer and I had set myself up in in a flat and things were were looking up. I was in control of my own life and I didn't have any doubts about the decision that I made. I I knew instantly that I was making the right decision. Did you see then from there your personal and then it led into your professional that you then success and growth then arose from that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was probably just a few weeks after I had left and I landed the job with Lagan Specialist Contracting Group, who I'm still employed with 13 years later. Um, I was going to all these interviews as a young female engineer and every single company, it's quite interesting actually, um, when I was going to be interviewed, they were asking me questions that you couldn't get away with asking now. It was, I was telling them that I had a daughter and my purpose was to provide for her and I was really interested in engineering 
And all of them alluded to the same thing. They all alluded to, how will you ever work 50 hours a week in a male environment as a mum? And I thought, well, I have her to provide for, of course. You know, I'll work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I need to provide for her. I'm her sole provider. Like a bloody cheek, kind of. Yeah. So, I mean, needless to say, uh, five, six interviews later and, and no job came of it until I went um, and had my interview with Lagan. And they looked at it in a completely different light. And, and they thought that if I could finish university with a, a young daughter and my time management skills and my resilience to, to have her, they thought you're, you're definitely someone who, who we want to employ. And 13 years later, I'm still there. You must have felt, my God, to have found somebody that actually appreciates what you've gone through and done. Yeah. That. I nearly lied in my interview. It was the last interview I had on the cards. And I thought this time I'm not going to tell them. I'm just going to say I'm an engineer. I got a first class and I won't, I'm not going to tell them. And I just felt like I wasn't being authentic mm. if I lied about her. Mm. Um, and I'm glad now I didn't. And it just shows you, doesn't it, like from one thing to another where it leads on to like it's, it's incredible. So talk to me about in terms of your time at Lagan, the kind of values that you've experienced there. Um, and your professional experience in the, the last 12 years, say, professionally with them? Yeah, so for anyone that doesn't know the Ligon business, they're a, a family-run business. They've been in the market for over 50 years. They're based in Belfast. And they've always had fa- values such as open and honest, trust, fun, caring. And they're values that I would really integrate into my own life. Um, I wasn't aware of the values straight off, but slowly but surely when I was kind of going up through the company, you really did feel part of the family, part of the team. Everybody looked out for each other. How does that work? It's quite interesting because we used to have a saying way back and it was like um, people are lagonized. So it's like they, they lead the lagging way, they do it the lagging way. And it's all just about being truthful and, and open and honest and genuine with each other. And they really instill that by living the values themselves. You know, the Lagan family and their senior management team around them um, are all very much approachable people. And when you see them living those values and you, you could, they remember your name if on seeing you one or two times, they um, know your children's names, they, they want to know about you as a person and not just what you can do for them as, a, as an employee. And that really hit home with me. So it very much comes from the top down. It does, yeah. Would you be shocked, do you think, if you came into another workplace that didn't have something like that and how, how you would be able to manage in a, in a situation that didn't have a similar values? Yeah, I would. I mean, it has to be real. At the end of the day, my, my family life is what is most important to me. And whilst I am the ultimate professional and, and love my work and love what I do, the company who I work for and spend most of my time with, Monday to Friday, needs to respect me as a person and respect that I have a family. And a company that wouldn't do that I wouldn't see myself working for them so I think it's got to stage now people say I'm probably unemployable by anybody else but talk to me about what's it like being a woman in the construction sector has it changed in terms of people looking at you seeing you in the sector that you're in or is there still a long way to go if I'm speaking honestly I think there's probably still a long way to go I mean I've seen changes um it depends on you as a type of person and, and, and how you treat things and how you deal with things. So you're going to get opposite ends of the spectrum. You're going to get people who welcome a female and have no issues with a female in a management role. And then you get others who just feel like, are you here to do my photocopying? 
and you do sadly get that it's just different characters but it's just how, how you deal with it you have three daughters i do would you recommend they get into the same i always visit schools and tell young girls about engineering and how it's a, a great career you know really it's a very difficult career it's very very hard and unless you have a real love and lust for wanting to do construction um or any career you know you have to have a love for it and all three of my daughters do not want to be engineers they're like you work way too hard your hours are too long you always seem stressed you know but I, I love what I do so whilst they don't want to be engineers I do like to try and change you know the outlook on stereotype and how young girls see engineering because it's it's a professional career you know it's not all about um, hands-on manual labor it's there's a profession there to be had and we change infrastructure every day all around us for people's essential needs and uh, the ICE, which is the Institution of Civil Engineers, who would be the professional body, they actually have a campaign at the minute called Invisible Heroes. So they're kind of marketing men and women within the civil engineering sector who have changed infrastructure around us. So it's like a cartoon campaign just to make it more um, tangible for younger kids, boys and girls. What does your job entail? So civil engineer wouldn't necessarily be manual labour, it's more of a management job. So a lot of the schemes we work on would be uh, road infrastructure, bridges, windmills, uh, urban regeneration, rock armour along coastal um, areas. There's lots of different schemes you can work on, airports as well. So anything that's kind of long and linear would be classed as civils, utilities. And then you would have building engineering, which is more buildings and structures and high-rise. Where's your personal interest? What you? I actually switched not that long ago into the building sector and I found myself working on building projects since about uh, 2005 and I actually I actually kind of prefer building to, Why is that? to civils. I think it's more intricate. You, you have more trades, you have mechanical, electrical, you have fit-out, you have finishing, you have structural steel, you have concrete and you also have all your civils, you know, the groundworks beforehand and then all of the hard and soft landscaping after. Talk to me about Africa, Rwanda. Yeah, so as an active member of the ICE who, who I mentioned, I would be actually a STEM ambassador. So as part of their commitment to ICE 200, uh, which is the uh, anniversary of the ICE being 200 years old, the ICE linked up with a charity called Bridges to Prosperity. And this charity travels to underdeveloped countries to... Uh, build bridges, uh, provide access to communities who don't otherwise have access to the marketplace or schools. So uh, I kind of raised this with the business and after a few months of deliberation I was told that I would be one of the people going. So um, in May this year, myself and nine other civil engineers from the north of Ireland, all from different companies, travelled to Rwanda with the intention of building a suspension bridge within two weeks. In fairness, we had a lot of support from the charity who do all of the engineering and design work before. The local community in Rwanda done most of the groundwork, so in terms of the foundations for the bridge. So when we got there, it was mostly the superstructure, so the steel frame and all the cabling and the decking that, that we needed to finish off. So you're there for two weeks? Two weeks, yeah. 
The biggest challenge we had, Dara, on, on probably the first few days, we didn't realise the environment that we were going to be living in. We thought we're going to go to Africa, we're going to build this bridge, we're going to be living like lords, and that was so not the case. What was it? We were um, in rural isolation in an underdeveloped part of Africa. We lived in a very modest accommodation with basic electric, um, like hot, more, more hot, yeah. Mm. So um, there was no running water. We had to share like one bucket of water. There was no toilet. The toilet was a hole in the ground that we all just shared. Okay, obviously you're going through the personal inconvenience. Mm. But then you kind of look at the wider picture going, okay, why am I moaning here when I'm struggling with this and people in the village have got it even worse? Yeah, I mean, it probably wasn't even a day into our trip. And I think you, you nailed it there by saying it was more than, it was just a personal inconvenience. When you've seen how people were living around you, it was, you know, just suck it up and... and you know, you have a home to go to in two weeks, so you're here to do a job and, and just get the job done. And were you living in a village on the outskirts or near the near the site? Yeah, well, or? We, we were living in a village, but there wouldn't have been somewhere where you could have travelled to a, a shop or had local amenities or anything like that. I mean, we were very, very isolated. So was there much interaction with the locals? or The locals actually came to our, our house every day before we left for work, so the the schedule would have been we we get up at five o'clock every day. We had breakfast at six, sunrises about half six, and the locals would have you know waved us off when we were driving through the villages in our trucks. You know, vehicle transport over there was uncommon, let alone five white people or ten white people travelling in the truck. So the young children would have been shouting into the trucks, you know, Mazungo, Mazungo. What's that mean? Which translates as uh, white person or person who's well travelled. They were obviously thrilled to see you there. Yeah. So it was the idea that you guys were uh, building a bridge that was going to open up the area to another area, was it? That was kind of... Yeah, so uh, we were building a bridge across uh, the Gizeh River and three months of the year this river would heavily flood in the rainy season. So it would isolate the community from their local healthcare, schools and the marketplace. Um, they had a very uh, basic structure crossing the ri- river, like it was one log and it wasn't uncommon for people and children to, to fall off this, you know, into the water. Um, I think in the past five years, three people had lost their lives just, just trying to cross a river. So it was very important um, that, that we provided this vital piece of infrastructure so they could access all the local amenities that we, we take for granted and do it safely. They must have been thrilled then to knowing what you were there to help for. Like. Yeah, so we had a lot of uh, community engagement with the, the local schools and we went and spoke to them. We we worked with some local people and we had translators there. But what we found out very quickly, that just through the medium of interaction and laughing and dancing, that we were able to communicate with people and, and have so much impact, even though we didn't speak the same language. Was the poverty and seeing seeing it up front and up close shocking for you? It was. It, it was so difficult and we had limited access to, to our phones, but when I did kind of connect online and upload a few photos, people from home were saying, how are you dealing with that? How can you see kids with no clothes? How can you not feed them or give them money? But what you realised when you were there and kind of embraced yourself in their culture was that the children actually didn't know any different so whilst they had no clothes and were playing up and down in, in the dirtiest river they they were laughing they were smiling they were happy they were engaging with us and we we met the same children every day and we taught them a few words of english and they were able to communicate with us and we were taking photos on our mobile phones they had never seen a photograph of themselves they were touching our skin they had never touched a white person before so the first few days 
when we walked on the site, all of the children probably ran back about 50 metres. And by the end of it, we were like shaking and high-fiving and, and having a wee dance together. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, yeah, the poverty is horrendous to see that. But I guarantee you they've got something that we don't in the Western society in terms of closeness of community and closeness of family and outside distractions and worries in that sense. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that, that I seen was um, the people are resilient. They're skillful. They um, are, are close to each other. They communicate. They're agile in, in what they do. They make every bit of material count. And all of the kind of attributes that, that the local people were, were shown was interesting and kind of hit home with me that they were shown attributes of being leaders. And I think the reason why they done that was because they don't have a choice. We're here at home. We have the cho- choice to, to lead or, or not to lead. Um, it's easy to go to school. It's easy to eat. It's easy to get a job. Things which we think aren't easy actually are easy for us. Where in Africa, if you don't choose to work, if you don't choose to be adaptable, if you don't uh, choose to reuse and recycle um, materials, then you know ultimately your survival and your kids' survival is very much at risk. So these people, I just found them um, that I was learning so much from them every day when really when I went out there, I had the expectation that I would be showing them so much, you know, what new skills and what would I really get out of this experience for me when really I just found that I just let myself go and I just embraced myself and, and what they were doing. So when you got back home, what was that experience like the first few days, first week? Was it? surreal kind of going my god look at all the stuff we have and compared yeah, to what you'd, you'd experience i really felt a massive sense of being spoiled. selfish spoilt wasteful um and i i certainly had a few conversations with my children and then shortly realized that you know i was a i was as bad and and it's the western way it's what we do so uh, i think one of the huge lessons was i'd never took time for myself from Cloda was born all those years ago to indulge in something like that and although it was hard i've definitely committed to do more volunteer work and certainly help uh, mentor young children in the local community in terms of how they look at their lives and how they approach their lives in terms of kind of i'm looking at some of the notes that you made in terms of how the experience changed your outlook change the plan not the goal tell me about that we had some difficulties along the way and certainly they would reminisce with my life so i always knew that i wanted to be an engineer and i always knew where where i wanted to be but uh, i always kept the goal the same but sometimes had to change the plan a little bit because the plan didn't always go as i thought it would go so in Africa, a few, a few things kind of happened as well, that we needed to build this bridge and we needed to build it in, in, in two weeks. So on day one, we had a plan. On day two, the plan changed. On day three, it changed again and, and it did again on day four. So we, I kind of come home thinking, you know, it is possible to keep your goals, but just slightly change the plan. Mm. And that's where personal resilience comes in and keeping a, a positive attitude and growth mindset and all of those things, I suppose, end the wooden still. Thanks a million, Kira, for joining us on, on this week's podcast. It's Thank been you. fascinating following your journey. And I think a lot of people listening to that will identify with in terms of early struggles in life, um, being proactive, making a choice taking control um, deciding what it is you want and going after it and then I think at the same time experiencing 
the other side from Rwanda and what people are going through there and what you can learn. What not, not what we can bring them, but what we can learn from other people who are less well off than us. Um, but there's still so many learnings in life that we can have, isn't there? Definitely, every day. Kira, thanks so much for joining Thanks, Tara. Don't forget to subscribe to the Commit Podcast on Apple, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And if you want to harness your strengths, develop a growth mindset, become more resilient and succeed, go to mcnulticperformance.com for insights and information.